Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast series on Listen to the Experts. We're referring to targeted temperature management. This is where we address key questions and current challenges in the field of therapeutic hypothermia and targeted temperature management. Now, the use of hypothermia has been around for a long time, but recently we're learning more and more from the experimental and clinical data. And so today, I'm really privileged to have two special guests, both thought leaders in the area of therapeutic hypothermia they would like to talk to. First, uh, let me thank Zoll for supporting this uh, podcast series. Uh, my name is Dalton Dietrich, and I'm at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And over 25 years now, I'm still conducting research in the area of therapeutic hypothermia, preclinical and clinical studies. So it's really still an important field. So I welcome our special guest today. Both are thought leaders in the field. First, Dr. Brian O'Neill. Dr. O'Neill holds the Minswami Data Inden Endowed Chair, Professor, Department of Emergency Medicine at Wayne State University School of Medicine. Dr. O'Neill uh, helped uh, co-write the American Heart Association Guidelines on Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation Preventing Hypothermia and Associate Editor of the Academic uh, Emergency Medicine. My privilege also to introduce Dr. Bird Bodinger. Dr. Bodinger is the professor and head of the Department of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care Medicine at the University Hospital in Cologne. He's the treasurer of the European Resuscitation Council, immediate past director of science and research of the ERC, chairman of German Resuscitation Council, and federal state doctor and medical advisor for the German Red Cross. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you very much, Dalton, and hello to everyone. Very good. Okay, best practice. First, we'll just start off is, is why do you use temperature management in your clinical practice and uh, current uh, challenges? Basically, how are you using therapeutic hypothermia and TTM in your daily practice? And what patient populations are you currently using this in? And then finally, are there guidelines that are different in the U.S. versus uh, Europe and Germany? So these are the type of things that we'd like to start the discussion off uh, briefly. First, Dr. O'Neill. So the first part of the tripart question. So the first part is uh, how we use it, why do we utilize it? I utilize it because I've seen firsthand both in the basic science lab and uh, our centers was one of, uh, one of the centers we're doing the perinatal asphyxia uh, model. And one of the ones who are in the clinical trial for use of hypothermia for perinatal cephalopathy due to hypoxia. When you see it in the lab and you actually do the tissue sections, there's no question that there's an effect. And there's no question you have an effect early. If it's applied so early that if you actually have the cardiac arrest while the, the rat is hypothermic, minimal to no damage in the hippocampus CA1 is your, what's your most uh, selectively zonable zone. Hypothermia plus the use of things like IGF-1 or high-dose insulin have shown that there's an additive effect and you can certainly block that. So I think the evidence in conditions such as perinatal asphyxia and others, there's no question we have an effect. Numbers need to, to treat for either decrease in mortality and or uh, cerebral palsy is, uh, is six. So number needed to treat is six. So there's states, there's no question that we have real efficacy. And, and I think that the two things we need to think about when we apply hypothermia is, is this the right patient population? Is this a suspected cardiac arrest, not due to hypoxia or other things? And it may work for that, but however, right now it's primarily cardiac that we see the, uh, the best effect for. And then 
should it be applied to this patient? Meaning, is this patient so severe, has cerebral edema, other things that portend a poor outcome on this patient? So I think those are the first things that we move forward. And again, every therapy we use that is critically needs to be uh, applied critically, meaning time chemical and uh, every drug that we use, whether it's TPA or whatever, time to balloon, every one of them are time critical. So there certainly is a therapeutic window across almost every therapeutic application that we use. Right now we use uh, 33 and there's been a discussion back and forth about the use of 33 and 36. Haven't got quite to the, the 37. We have gone back and forth on that. Most of my time is spent talking about the populations in TTM2 and how they differ from mine. I think that'll come later, but that's how we're applying it. We're not applying it to the very severe, though. If you have basically, if we think you're out of hospital cardiac arrest and you don't have significant cerebral edema, we will treat you at 33. And we are part of the ice cap protocol now. So that is their meter. Very good, Dr. Bodinger. Yep, thank you very much. So um, in my hospital and in my department, uh, we use um, temperature management in all cases of out of hospital and in hospital cardiac arrest and maybe also in other circumstances where patient um, had a period of cerebral ischemia and we use it in all patients if we are not sure that there is no damage. So if we are 100% sure for different reasons in a given patient that there is no damage, we, we don't use therapeutic um, temperature management. But if we have any doubt, we cool the patients down. And this applies for adults and children. Our pediatricians are cooling children. We, we also sometimes, because I have four ICU beds for children in, in my department for children post-cardiac surgery. If we are cooling children, we are doing it for 72 hours regularly. And if we are cooling adults, we are doing it for at least 24 hours. And um, according to what we just heard from the US, we are, we are also using 33 degrees Celsius as the target temperature. In children, sometimes 34, 35 degrees Celsius, but then a longer period, as I said. And only if we are in a very, um, in a very perioperative setting with high risk of bleeding complications or so, then sometimes we choose a little bit higher temperatures like 35 degrees Celsius or so. And um, I, I would like to add that um, we know from these children that uh, that are going under ice in winter accidentally um, and cooled very fast down to low temperatures because of this accident, they can, they can be successfully resuscitated even after 40, 45 or 50 minutes. And this is also what I have learned from a lot of animal experimental studies we did in our labs over the last 20 years where I can say that I never have seen anything which is as effective as hypothermia to protect the brain. So we have really investigated more or less all drugs, all pathways and all um, medical and drug interventions with in most of the cases limited um, success and nothing is as effective as cooling. And that is the reason why we are using it um, and that is the reason why we use the clinical data that are valuable for this. 
Um, and we have seen so many um, patients coming good out of these conditions that we are all very convinced that we need to cool the patients if they are not too good to be cooled. I think the new literature is saying uh, too good to be cooled or too worse off to be cooled. And, and that's kind of the areas we're dealing with this intermediate group of subjects, which are we gather is a very heterogeneous population and you know exactly who is actually gonna benefit most from that. So today we've already talked about a level of hypothermia. We've mentioned briefly duration of hypothermia, which uh, is variable depending on different types of groups. How about the therapeutic window for therapeutic hypothermia? Do you have any suggestions uh, based on preclinical work? I, we've done some of that, and it appears in, in rat models, for example, of, um, of global ischemia. Sometimes, you know, after six hours, we start to lose that effect. But of course, that's in the laboratory, and that's under experimental conditions. But clinically, when you get someone into the uh, hospital, obviously, starting cooling earlier is better. But what do you think about that therapeutic window and what challenges present in the real world? Brian? There's no question that there's definitely a window to this. There's so many things that go on very early in the, the ischemic reperfusion, ischemia reperfusion brain. Radicals happen fairly quickly, but calcium overload, all these things that potentially can be ameliorated by hypothermia happen early. So that it needs to be applied early. And I think you're right. Somewhere between four and eight hours, we start to lose the effect in rats in very large studies. And six hours is probably pushing it to the edge. So I think that's exactly the reason that IceCap utilized the four-hour window to get them to um, temperature. So if we can get a temperature between the four, uh, four hours, are actually a candidate to be placed into the ice cap trial, which is the variation in uh, duration of hypothermia and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So no question, like everything we do, everything that's critical needs to be applied early and quickly. Sometimes it can be very difficult. Actually, it's more difficult to cool somebody who has more of an intact brain and intact thermostat than it is to have somebody who's not going to do as well, which becomes a problem in the ice cap trial. But no question, there's a window and, and it needs to be quite quickly. And I'm convinced that the faster I can cool you, the better off they are. If I can drop you quickly, a lot of the homeostatic uh, mechanisms come into play. And the other thing is, is that the body doesn't like variations, in particular quick variations. So once you do get them to maintenance, you want to maintain them at, in a fairly narrow window, because otherwise I believe that you're turning on and off. If we believe the mechanism is decreasing metabolism and enzymatic uh, changes, then certainly changes across that temperature window will, will affect the enzymatic activity. Very good. Dr. Bodinger, is there a period of time after, when the patient comes in that you think it's in your, in your um, again, clinical uh, activities that maybe it's too late to start cooling or do you try to cool anyway or what's your strategy in that regard? Someone that comes in very late to your, um, to your crit critical care unit. I mean, um, we are trying to cool all patients where we are not 100% sure that they will not have any cerebral damage. Mm -hmm. That means that we are also cooling patients that are coming in a little bit later. And in many cases, you don't know exactly that. Sometimes you, you have difficulties to exactly de define the, the time interval from, from collapse to uh, treatment or so. But what I, can, what I can say in general is that 
I mean, again, think about these children that unfortunately get under ice in winter by accident. This is immediate cooling. And with immediate cooling, you can resuscitate the brain even after 45 minutes without any damage. And I also remember that several animal experimental studies showing a time-dependent relationship about the effects of cooling. So very early you have an effect and the longer the duration is or the therapeutic interval between ischemia and start of cooling, the lower is the effect. And I also do not remember any experimental study showing any effects after more than five, six or seven hours after the event. And that is also a thing that we need to take into account when we interpret uh, the new studies like uh, TTM1 and TTM2, because according to the data that are presented in these studies, they started with randomizing the patients following out of hospital cardiac arrest after more than two hours and they reached the target temperature after more than seven hours. And in such a setting, I would not expect, based on all the data I know from animal experimental um, studies, from clinical studies, and from my patients, I would not expect any effect. And to be a little bit uh, provocative, probably, I would not even expect that fever would harm in such a setting. So. If we are cooling, we are doing it as fast as possible. We are not waiting several hours until we start cooling. And that is my recommendation. That is the way to go. Please always think about the children that immediately go under ice and have a good outcome even after 45 minutes of whole body ischemia. Well, doesn't that then indicate that we should be thinking about strategies where we can start cooling earlier. And there has been some discussion in literature about potentially starting cooling strategies in the way to the hospital, for example. So what are both of your ideas regarding if that's a good idea or is it a, is it a possibility for the future, uh, Brian? I think it's a good idea. I think the, the quicker you can do it, the better. The use of ice cold saline and large boluses did increase incidence of congestive heart failure, which wasn't a huge problem with outcome. But I think there's other ways that we could do that, uh, whether that you, you use uh, the high flow air or the very super cooled uh, oxygen. You know, it all depends on your transport time. If you, just like everything else, if you have a very short transport time, six to seven minutes, you're not going to have any effect. If your transport time is measured in 30 to 40 minutes, I think it's absolutely critical that we could do something and have to come up with a method besides uh, cold sailing, because even though with two to three liters, I only brought you down by about one degree. But we'd love to have EMS kind of cool. And I think one of the if you start cooling, then somebody has to make a decision to stop cooling. So I enjoy it when EMS pushes us to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Dr. Bodinger has twice has talked about these uh, children that fall in the ice and how spectacular the outcome is. And it reminds me that, you know, Patrick Lydon has been suggesting that um, another strategy for looking at cooling is bring temperature down as, as low as you can, which is uh, obviously, um, you know, um, with safety of the patient in, in mind. But then after a period of time, you can, after the, that hypothermia kind of, that 
more moderate hypothermia or severe hypothermia stops all these secondary injury cascades, you can now maybe bring temperature up to like a 35 or a 36, and uh, that will alleviate some of the maybe uh, severe problems of uh, very severe hypothermia for a long period of time. So it's other, all kinds of strategies that, that are out there right now thinking about early cooling and uh, these variables that we have to deal with um, every day because of the various uh, sick, pa sick patients we're looking at. So I thought an area that we could talk about a little bit is combination approaches. Hypothermia plus what? I mean, in the uh, old days and global ischemia models, we combined hypothermia with MK to one, one of the very early <laughs> M M uh, NMDA blockers, and we saw this additive effect. And then we added hypothermia with this free radical scavenger. So why isn't that being done more and more, Dr. Bollinger, for example? Is it because of the complexity of uh, clinical trials? It's hard to kind of add combination approaches to really figure out what the benefit, or are we still just dealing with the benefits of hypothermia that would, that would make another a combination approach more complicated or too complicated? I would comment on that question as follows. First of all, hypothermia, if it is early installed and if the temperature is reached after a very short period of time, it is so potent that it is hard to get an additional effect by any other intervention or any drug. If I remember right, the drug, what is it, MK8? MK8. MK801. 801. <laughs> I, I remember many years ago, several studies, and please help me, most of them are in focal cerebral ischemia. There is an effect of MK801, but I don't remember a study where it has been tested in global cerebral ischemia or in cardiac arrest and reperfusion. And despite there are effects in stroke models, I also do not know that it is used regularly in stroke during these days in the clinical setting. So I would say most of the drugs do not have additional effects, at least in global cerebral ischemia models, as far as I know, maybe except of xenon or other gases like xenon, I, we have seen several um, experimental studies showing particularly in children or in small or newborn animals that there is an additional effect if you are combining xenon or other similar gases with hypothermia. And what we also don't know at this stage is whether maybe volatile anesthetics, if they have an effect in terms of cerebral ischemia and reperfusion by also maybe some kind of pre or post conditioning mechanisms, maybe they can use in addition to cooling also in the clinical setting. And it, at least in Germany, we have volatile anesthetics and adequate devices to use them for sedation in ICU patients. And um, although we don't have clinical data in cardiac patients, that show a beneficial effect we are using in, in most of the cases, um, volatile anesthetics to sedate our patients, particularly also children. But there are still no clinical data available on this approach. Yes, I was not saying that MK01 was a good drug that we should be thinking about, but it was just a, it was just a first attempt to look at excitotoxicity and see if you you know, added that to the hypothermia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that, that was it, yeah. Uh, I know Dr. Neil has some interest in combination approaches. 
And I think Bert hit on a couple of things. I mean, hypothermia has multiple effects. It actually decreases oxygen radicals, whether that's just due to it decreasing the metabolic rate. And it certainly turns on proto-oncogenes, which help us uh, with repair mechanisms. I think where the beauty in this is not so much finding radical scavengers or glutamate or NMDA receptor antagonists. I really think it's more towards the growth factor. So that's why I thought IGF-1 and insulin. And we're playing now with um, the group at the University of Michigan, intranasal insulin, because you can give very high doses into the nose and get uh, quite an effect. And when we looked at it in the basic science lab, we could turn protein synthesis back on by using 20 units per kg of insulin at the time of ROSC. So I, I think there's something there, but I think there's other things we could be doing in the meantime. And I think that when you look at some of these disease states, so if you look at neonatal hypoxia, the, the injury is, the insult is stopped. They stop the insult. And once the insult stops you, and you apply the therapy, it has much better effect than if the insult continues all the way through. I'm referring to the, the Levy et al. study that looked at the use of hypothermia plus ECMO. So cardiogenic shock patients needed to be animated, put randomized to either uh, ECMO plus hypothermia or ECMO alone, and they looked at outcomes after that. Half of those patients got into the study because of cardiogenic or uh, uh, cardiac arrest, and they saw an 8% absolute, 8% absolute difference between the two groups in mortality. And that split happened about day three when you look at the Kaplan-Meier plot, which was fairly interesting. And it's not about the time about a neurologic death. But I think that, that that takes one of the pieces of the equation out. So we, you know, we take these patients that they've got cardiogenic shot, they've got an epinephrine, the heart is not working very well, it's concussed, you know, and if, if you could offload the organs that are going to be most damaged, your brain, your kidney, your heart, and give them some time to recover, plus the addition of hypothermia, I think that really had an amazing difference. And I think the cardiac parameters improved as well as the neurologic parameters in this small study. Nice, very nice. Yeah, I like the idea of uh, hypothermia plus something that we could potentially repair the nervous system. It really, you know, it's really that one, two punch that you really need. Very nice. I guess the next thing we could talk about a little bit is just cooling methodologies. I mean, it's already, we already mentioned that uh, in terms of cooling, there may be a, um, a very narrow uh, uh, window, if you will, in terms of how, what level of hypothermia uh, especially if you start cooling, you don't want the temperature to go up and down. So is there a discussion out there among the two of you in terms of your favorite cooling strategies, or do you use everything available at the time? Uh, Dr. Bodinger, uh, how do you cool patients uh, most frequently? In my department, we are using intravascular cooling devices for many years now. And when we started cooling, we just used external cooling with, with ice packs or with uh, with other devices that um, use external cooling. Uh, since we have doctors available all day and all night and we have immediate intravenous success with these kind of devices, we are using these feedback controlled intravascular devices. And um, again, I would like to say that we need to put them in as fast as possible. So this is an, an urgency. You should not delay this for minutes or, or even hours. And I also like the concept of starting in the out-of-hospital setting, but as we know, we have PRINCESS and the PRINCE trial that showing some effects in subgroups of patients with early cooling, but unfortunately the studies have not been powered because it was very hard to recruit patients and they had to stop the studies earlier that 
the signal was in most of the groups not significant. But to answer your question, finally, you can use everything that is um, able to cool a patient down. I don't know any study showing that one method is better than the other. But the most important message is do it and do it immediately as early as possible. Okay. Dr. O'Neill? I totally agree. Whatever you can. And let, let's face it, I, I mean, I'm in a resource limited hospital and at one hospital we have an intervascular device that we utilize, another hospital we use uh, surface plus um, ice bags. I prefer the uh, intervascular, I think I get better control, I think I can cool them faster, and particularly the patients, I think the, the biggest difference I see is that our patients uh, tend to have BMIs, a lot of our patients have BMIs greater than 35, which uh, really those are difficult to cool surface, plus if you put them on pressors or ground vasoconstrictors, it takes a lot longer, so we've noticed it, and uh, we have been enrolling for the ice cap trial that uh, we have to really push hard, uh, really have to push hard for surface cooling to make that four hour. Mm -hmm. Very good. In reading some of the commentaries on the TTM studies, I mean, you can, you can see that a lot of surface cooling, I think, was utilized in those studies. And you see um, maybe the study could have uh, come out differently if it was a little bit more precise in terms of early cooling, early initiating the cooling, early um, uh, getting to target temperature and less variability between the different patient populations. That's things that you know, we learn as, we, as these really complicated studies are completed. I think the, the area that I, we can just finish on uh, has to do with area that I'm, I'm very interested in reading these days is the problem that we have in stroke and traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury and also cardiac arrest is patient heterogeneity. And you, know, you get a patient coming in the hospital, there may be, um, you know, some uh, inconsistent uh, data in terms of when the cardiac arrest patient happened, uh, you know, how long the delay in terms of uh, bystander or cardiopulmonary um, resuscitation started. And Dr. Bollinger has recently published a really interesting article that looks at the relationship between rates of bystander cardiopulmonary resuscitation effectiveness of uh, TTM therapy. So, Maybe uh, Dr. Bodinger could talk to a little bit about that, that observation and result. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Dietrich. So we have been a bit surprised that the latest clinical studies, TTM1 and TTM2, did not show impressive effects of temperature management. And one of the reasons we have already mentioned is the delay until the target temperature was reached. This was in both studies at least more than seven hours, which is far too late you will i would never expect any effects based on all experimental and clinical data i know but we also did another analysis with uh, together with our statistician and we tried to find a correlation between the bystander cpr rate so the rate how often lay bystanders started cpr before the emergency medical service system arrives which means if bystanders start CPR, that will reduce the whole downtime or the whole duration of ischemia. And we know from TTM1, it was mentioned in table one, if I remember right, that the median duration of ischemia was one minute, one 
minute was the median duration of ischemia because they had a bystander CPR rate of a between uh, of close to 80%. In most of the cases, that means that a bystander started CPR, but this was the end of ischemia because there was reperfusion of the brain. And if you have only one minute of ischemia, it's another setting where I would never expect any effect of any protective intervention, including hypothermia. And therefore, we generated the hypothesis that maybe if you have such high bystander CPR rates, you would not really expect damage and you would not really expect an effect of any intervention. And that was proven by our analysis. When we did this analysis, we, we clearly find a highly significant correlation. So if bystander CPR rates are below 60 or below 50%, then you have a significant effect of therapeutic in, um, hypothermia or temperature management. If bystander CPR rates are around 60, 70, or 80%, or even higher, there is no effect. And this is, this is based on a lot of clinical studies we, we um, analyze, analyzed in this, um, in this study that we have published. And this fits very well to my physiological understanding, because that means if the time of ischemia is longer, so if the insult is more severe, then you would expect an effect of an, any therapeutic intervention, including hypothermia. But if the insult is so minor because you have 80, 90% bystander CPR rates and only one minute of ischemia, then you would not expect any effects. And that's what we are seeing in all the clinical studies that are valuable over the last 20 years. And that brings me to the conclusion, and that is the way we are, we are treating our patients here in Cologne and in most areas in Germany and maybe Europe. I'm telling my colleagues, if our patients are not similar to the patients that have been investigated in TTM1 and TTM2, please cool them for 33 degrees Celsius for 24 hours at least, and only if we have a patient that is similar to those that have been enrolled in TTM1 and TTM2, we may um, use other um, approaches to treat them in our ICU. That, that is my conclusion from these data and from our own analysis, including all larger clinical trials on hypothermia and temperature management following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Yes. I think Bert's right on. He's spot on. When I look at my patient population, it doesn't look like TTM. I wish, and I think he's absolutely right. The greatest advantage for a therapy to work is on those that are the, the sicker group. And we know TTM1 and TTM2, very short downtimes, a lot of STEMIs, very aggressive cath lab, 80% going to the cath lab within two hours. When you look at their data, lactates are about six, pH about 7.2, three quarters of them with cupillary or, or uh, corneal reflexes, all of those showing that this is a less damaged population. And both of the groups did very well with us, a 50% CPC one and two. So this is, a, this, is a, this is a very select group of patients and I couldn't agree more. My patients don't come in with those reflexes. My lactates are much higher. Patients are sicker, different group of patients. Therefore, I cannot apply TTM 
to my patients that I see because that, that's not the group that was studied. So we're, we're at 33, we're pushing. We do go back and forth on 33 and 36 every once in a while, but I'm convinced 33 is probably the right number we will see, but I can't apply TTM one or two to my populations. Yes, and I, what I also think and what I'm always telling my colleagues is in doubt, if you're not sure that there is, if you're not sure that there is no brain damage, please cool the patient down because side effects more or less do not exist. I mean, it is no risk for a patient being cooled down to 33 degrees Celsius, at least in by far almost all cases. The only thing that can happen is that potassium levels will probably decrease a little bit more. But if you're analyzing that and treating that, it's not a problem at all. Um, and that is the, the message is you are always on the safe side and on the side of the patient. Yeah, I, I, I like that analogy. So the analogy I've used, Bert, is that uh, so the adverse effect rate is exactly the same. So I could I could treat your urinary tract infection with 500 milligrams of Keflex, or I could do with 250. The side effect profile was the same. Which one would you go with? And you know, I think that the potential for for better cure is with the, the higher doses of the therapy. But I agree. Yeah. Okay, well, I think our time is running out and I think we've talked a, a number of subjects. I mean, the only thing else I had listed is, is there a surrogate biomarker that we could use early on to tell us whether it's 33 or 36 or somewhere in between? Are we gonna to get to that point or what do you think? I don't know about early on. I don't know about early on, but if you look at this, the, the, the thing we're doing is we're, we're throwing it a therapy and then we're really not following any real outcome that we can follow. I mean, even in traumatic brain injury, we're looking at finally we're getting to the point where you're using some brain oxygenation monitors really look at the organ of interest. I think that we've looked at the somewhat cerebral oximetry on the, on the patients. Those patients that symmetry drops, so they're, I'm sorry, it, it stays high. So they're, they're not utilizing a lot of oxygen. So their extraction is fairly low. If extraction is low during hypothermia and, and you warm them and the extraction stays low, uh, those patients do well. If, you, if you're hypothermic and your extraction's high and you warm and the extraction stays high or expands, that's telling me that, uh, that those cells are still ischemic and they still have an oxygen debt and therefore you probably should uh, try and decrease their metabolic rate a little bit longer. There are, there are some, you know, there are some institutes that were actually putting the duration of hypothermia to the duration of insult, which I think is interesting, mm -hmm. is interesting. And there's some, you know, maybe an early signal that there's something there, but you're right. I think that putting every, you know, one size fits all is a little archaic and that we really need to get some biomarkers. And I'm not sure that, I mean, we could look at NFL or other, these other markers are out there that to, to try and figure out uh, what's there, but I really think we need a physiologic marker looking at the, the supply and demand in real time to affect the, the therapy. I'm sure Dr. Bodinger agrees, but I think he's done some work on S100. Is that, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, but well, I'm, I would like first to answer with a clear no. We don't have a biomarker that says us, that tells us in the early stages whether it is useful to use any therapeutic intervention or not. Um, that is also the reason why uh, since uh, since I think about 10 years, we are recommending in our guidelines to do prognostication following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, not within the first 72 hours, because we have learned that before, in many cases, the wrong decision was probably drawn and 
therapeutic measures have been stopped, although the patient would have had a good chance for survival. I personally have investigated S100, as you said, many years ago in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. We also have investigated NSE, and I can tell you that I would also not trust both markers with regard to early prognostication. I personally know several patients which had very high levels of NSE over 120, over 130, over 140. And at the end, they had a good neurological outcome. And fortunately, we didn't stop therapy, although it was in some cases recommended by the consultant neurologist. So please pay attention with all these biomarkers. Sometimes we are using NSE, but only in a way that if it is low, you can be pretty sure that there is no damage to the brain. If it is high, it is very hard to have any solid prognostication based on this. Very good. Well, I would like to thank you both, Dr. Brian O'Neill, a professor of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Wayne State University, and Dr. Bernd Bodinger, a professor of anesthesiology and intensive care at the University of Cologne. Thank you both for this discussion. I think it was very informative. I'd also like to acknowledge uh, Marianne Liebert Publishers and Zoll Medical for providing an educational uh, grant to support this podcast. So again, my name is Dalton Dietrich and thank you very much for joining and um, stay cool until next time we talk. Take care, bye-bye.